As we continue in our neighboring series this morning, our scripture reading comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. So I have long been a fan of the show Survivor. Any other Survivor fans? Oh, some of you were like, no, it's a terrible show. Uh, it is one of the longest running shows on television, so they're doing something, right? Uh, and while each season kind of introduces a new twist to the game, the concept of the show is relatively simple. For 39 days, a group of people are stranded on some beautiful tropical island, and they live in tribes, surviving together as they build shelters and fires and forage for food. Competitions send one tribe to tribal council, where a member of the tribe is voted out of the game. Then as the numbers dwindle, the tribes merge, and it becomes every man or woman for him or herself looking to outwit, outplay, and outlast every other person until they can claim the title of sole survivor. And I think one of the reasons that Survivor has endured for 42 seasons is because the game is a fascinating microcosm of life. Each person is there for one purpose, themselves. They want the title, and they want the million dollars that goes with the title. But to get there, they have to work with other people and form alliances and figure out how long they can trust a person and when they're maybe about to be betrayed or when they need to betray someone in their alliance to get ahead. It was so fascinating in season eight to watch the relationship between Boston Rob and Amber. How many of you remember this relationship? Yeah. They quickly formed an alliance, which quickly grew into something more, until the two of them were fighting all of the odds together, looking out for one another, until they were the last two standing and were in love. 
And at final tribal council, you plead your case for why people should vote for you to win the game of Survivor. Those votes are then read in front of a live studio audience, which they try to make out happens immediately after, but actually takes place months after, which allowed time for Rob and Amber's relationship to develop. And so at that final show, just before Jeff was about to read the votes, Boston Rob interrupted him, got down on one knee, and proposed to Amber. And it was important, of course, that he did this before the votes were read. <laughs> he wanted everyone to know, he wanted Amber to know, in the midst of this game of trickery and betrayal and self-motivated behavior of which he was the biggest trickster and conniver of them all, that his love for Amber was sincere. That this was not, in the end, about just getting at the money. And that turned out to be a really good move because Amber ended up winning the game. Our text from Romans 12 is about sincere love. That's how our passage starts. Love must be sincere. Everything else that follows shows us what this means and what it doesn't mean. Verses 9 to 21 are a set of instructions. Do this, don't do that. And these instructions help us understand what sincere love is. We might think we know what sincere love is, and we probably think we do okay at it. We're pretty okay at loving people, loving our neighbors sincerely. We're, we're nice to people. We try really hard to love our spouses all the time. We even pray for our enemies from time to time. But our love, no matter how hard we try, often has some slightly less than sincere motivations. We love someone for all of their good qualities. We love them for their, their personality or for their beautiful looks or for their good heart. But when they do something that angers us or their appearance starts to change or we discover that they aren't as perfect as we initially made them out to be, our love for them can falter just a bit. We love someone because of how they make us feel. They, they bring something good out in us. They make us feel like a better human being, or they just make us feel alive. But that love, too, is, is based on a selfishness, on our own desire to feel good. We love someone, even when it is hard, because we want to do the right thing. We hold our tongues when we're with that busybody in our neighborhood. We pray for world leaders that we think are evil. We continue to be nice to the boss that treats us like dirt. But even this love can be more about us than it is about them. More about us wanting to be the better person, to earn our crowns in heaven, to show the world how good a person we are, to climb the morality ladder. Love so often is insincere. It's frail and it's faulty and 
It's here one day and it's gone tomorrow. It's self-motivated. It's more about making us feel good than someone else. It's a moralistic quest done to earn our place in the kingdom rather than make room for someone else. So what is sincere love then? If many of our attempts to love one another, even with the purest of intentions, fall prey from time to time to our whims and our pride and our ego. What does it look like to love sincerely? Well, the theologian Karl Barth in his commentary on the book of Romans helps us out. And full disclosure, I'm going to be using Barth a lot this morning, uh, mostly because his commentary on the book of Romans is brilliant, but also because I have this commentary in book form, which came in useful on Friday uh, when I was working on this sermon and couldn't access the internet. (laughs) But Bart notes that the love Paul is talking about in chapter 12 is not eros or philios or pathos, those Greek words, which are loves that are oriented towards the self or our closest friends or those in need. This love is agape love. And agape love is love oriented towards the image of God in one another. He talks about the idea of the hidden God that within each person, each other is the one, the one who made that person and loved that person and died for that person and extended grace to that person, just as the one made us and loved and died for and extended grace to us. And so Bart says that our agape love, our sincere love is love oriented to God to the enduring image of God in each person, the truth of God's love for each person that doesn't change based on our whims and fancies. And he explains this using the Ten Commandments. We often talk about the Ten Commandments as being written in two tables. Table one is all about our actions towards God. Love God and him alone. Make no idols or images. Don't misuse God's name. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Table two are commandments about our actions towards one another. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not covet, etc. And Bart uses this idea of the tables to help us understand what sincere love is. He writes that love is without dissimulation or without insincerity, when our ethical behavior, that which we do, bends backwards from the commandments of the second table to those of the first, from secondary ethical actions to the primary ethical action. In other words, love is sincere when our actions towards one another are driven by our desired actions towards God. When we seek to worship the Lord our God, and glorify him and submit our lives to him by and through our love for one another as we seek to love God by loving one another. Sincere love, therefore, is love that is cognizant of the fact that God is God and we are not. And knowing we are not God Sincere love, then, is humble. 
It values the other knowing that they are loved by God in the same way we are loved by God. A love that is a gift, not an earned reward or an inherent characteristic. And Paul spends the next verses showing us what this sincere love looks like. Be devoted to one another in love, he writes. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Now that last line, never be lacking in zeal, gets a really interesting take from Bart. He translates it like this. Be not slothful in seriousness. By which he means don't rest lazily on your own sense of authority. On your own insistence that you know everything and are very impressive and have the corner on what is right in the world. That you are in God's privy counsel and know his will more than the next person. Rather... Be fervent fervent in zeal, constantly ask questions and listen and seek to know more about God and his world. Renounce all impressiveness, Bart says, and be impressive. Take yourself down a notch and so situate yourself properly before the wonder and power and sovereignty of God, helping others to see this too. Paul continues, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. Remember that God is sovereign and it is not up to us to make all things perfect in the world, nor can we. We simply trust our lives to God And as we trust, knowing our lives are in God's hands, we are then able to open ourselves up to one another, sharing all that we have, welcoming all into our midst. We go on. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Again, remember that you are just as deserving of God's judgment as the next person and just as undeserving of God's love. There is nothing about our lives, our job title, our tax bracket, our heritage, the number of Bible verses we read each morning that makes us more or less loved by God than anyone else. And so no matter who we are, we are to live humbly and with gratitude, always coming back to God as the origin of our joy, our salvation, our peace. And finally, we get to these verses Paul writes about our enemies, maybe the most challenging part of this section. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. 
On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And once more, Bart has a really interesting take. All of you should just read Bart's commentary on Romans because it really is, it's brilliant. And he has this interesting take on verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. On a, a more obvious reading, when we read this, at, you know, take it at a surface glance, we would think this means if anyone does something bad to you, don't do something bad to them. But Bart takes it a little deeper. We don't much like to talk about total depravity, but it is one of the foundational tenets of our faith system, the idea that without God at work in us, we are bent towards evil. We give in to our own desires and wants and whims and fancies. The Heidelberg Catechism question and answer five puts it pretty bluntly. I am inclined by nature to hate God and neighbor. And this is the reality then for each one of us. And yet, says Bart, even though we know this is true for ourselves, we hold other people liable for that truth in themselves. It's somehow their fault that they are inclined to hate God and neighbor. He says, he says, there it is. He says, this making men liable for what they are is to render to them evil for evil. Long before we have begun a conflict with the other, long before we have adopted his evil tactics and have attacked him and counterattacked him, we have rendered to him evil for evil simply because we have made him liable, simply because we have not apprehended what he is not, simply because we have not apprehended the image of God in him. We see a person as prone to evil, not also a beloved child of God. And so we turn the other into an enemy. And here is where everything comes to a head in this passage, where all of Paul's previous admonitions about living humbly, about situating ourselves rightly before God are so important. Because once a person is an enemy, and if we have given ourselves over to conceited ideas that we have the corner on all that God wishes and wills for the world, what is there to do but attack that enemy? To defend the will of God, to defend what is good and right in the world, to stamp out that which is evil. Of course, our enemy likely believes that they are defending what is good and right in the world. And so we have become the enemy of our enemy, rendering evil for evil. And now both of us, both of us who are not in fact God, stand in a place of judgment, stand in need of grace. And that grace is offered to us, to both of us. Love is rendered to us not because we have earned it or know best 
or have proven ourselves to be righteous defenders of the kingdom, but precisely because we are not. And so we are called to humility, to relinquish that person and any judgment we think they may deserve into the hands of God, because God is God and we are not. And instead, we are called to that which feels nearly impossible, to treat our enemy as though he or she is a human with all the same needs and desires and frailties as we have, to feed them, to give them something to drink. In doing so, says Paul, we will heap burning coals on their head which admittedly feels a little less like love and a little more like vengeance. But the idea here is that we make a person aware of their own need for grace. If someone dumps hot coals on your head, you are going to shake them off and run far away as fast as you possibly can. And by treating someone with humility and kindness, by extending to them the same grace God has extended to us, we take away any reason for them to respond to us with animosity and leave them with the question of their own behavior, a question by which God might call them to repent of their behavior, to shake it off, and to run to him to be quenched by grace. And then hopefully both of us, me and my neighbor, will then see that we stand as equals before the grace of God, fully deserving of judgment, fully saved by grace. And we can love each other, not when it best suits us, not according to our whims and fancies, not as we try to get ahead in the game of life to outwit outplay and outlast everyone else, but for the love of God, the love of God that empowers us to love, the love of God that makes each of us worthy of love. Would you pray with me? And so, Lord God, help us to love as you have loved us. Help us to live in humility, constantly seeking to know your will for us and your world, but never boastful in our own authority. Help us to live in right relation to you, acknowledging your sovereignty and majesty and the power of your love so we might live in right relation to one another. Help us to love our neighbor and to love you above all else. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.